Hello and welcome to Seeing Red. I'm Bethan. And I'm Mark. Welcome back. And thank you for joining us once again, guys, and for listening to our show. Just blows my mind every week that people join in and listen to us. Isn't it wonderful? It is a little bit weird, isn't it? I wouldn't say weird because, like, that's kind of the whole point of a podcast. Anyway, we um we just wanna we wanna thank all of our existing patrons and our new ones over the last week as well. Uh, so thanks go to the following people. We have Becky Mackey, Rebecca Hogg, Jessica Priest, Lisa Rush, Laura Noakes, and Emily Horton. Thank you so much, like Mark said, to all of you guys and to all our existing patrons as well. If you would like to join these guys and support us on Patreon too, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash seeingredpodcast, where there's all different tiers of um, membership and loads of different things for you to get for your membership. Bonus episodes, competitions, all sorts, and your book club mark, which I have just read the book for the first run through. So I'm going to read it again. Have you literally read it? Mm -hmm. So good. Such Jesus a good book. Jesus Christ, Bethan. You've read that in like days. Yeah, I love I love reading though. So that was my, um, that's what I did while I was getting the baby off to sleep. I would sit and read a little bit more. Well, I've, I've kind of um, gone for the lazy option because I've downloaded it on Audible and I've still not started it. But I think I'm going to wait really because I want it to be fresh uh, when we meet, when we meet with everybody in three months time. So I'll probably start listening to it a couple of weeks before we meet. But um, yeah, you're going to have to reread it. Yeah, I will. I've read it once for a read through and then I'll read back and I've, I can make notes and stuff that way, I think. Um, OK, so um, on to this week's case then. Uh, this week's case is possibly one of the most harrowing that I've ever covered. It's devastatingly upsetting and it's definitely, definitely up there with the New Cross double murder episode that I did in season two. In that episode, uh, we covered the case of French students Laurent Bonomo and Gabriel Ferrez. Uh, they were stabbed nearly 250 times in what prosecutors called an orgy of bloodletting. Laurent and Gabriel were tortured for several hours before being killed, and their living room resembled an abattoir by the time their attackers had finished with them. It was quite simply cruelty in the extreme. The violence inflicted on the subject of today's episode is equally as harrowing and grotesque as in the New Cross Double Murder episode, and it will definitely haunt you. In fact, the victim was so severely physically and mentally brutalised that he would go on to end his own life by undergoing voluntary euthanasia in Belgium just 15 months after his attack. I'm really glad that you are covering this case because I really don't know a lot about what happened and... Um, it's a case that I know of, but you know, and it's not something you've really ever researched or read much about, and it's just so sad. So I'm I'm really glad that you have covered this, but it can't be easy at all. No, it's um, it's been it's just been one of those really difficult cases to put together. I'm not going to lie, and um, we had to delay recording, didn't we? Because I was still working on it because it's just sort of consumed me for. Um, days really and I think it's going to be one of those cases that has a real kind of lasting impact on us and, and our listeners as well um, just because like you said it is just so sad. Oh it's, it's going to be one of those weeks Mark I'll have to find something fun for next week. <laughs> Definitely um, yeah we're just just gonna have to suck it up. Um, in 2010, the lives of Mark Van Dongen and Belina Wallace collided when they met on a dating site for people living with HIV. 
Mark, who was in his early 20s at the time and living in his home country of the Netherlands, made the first move and messaged Bellina, who was originally from South Africa, but was now living in Bristol, a city in the southwest of England, and also my hometown. Ooh, shout out to Bristol. Shout out to Bristol. Mark was immediately drawn to Bellina's complex, diametrical persona. Beneath her raw vulnerability lay a steely determination. She had had a difficult upbringing in South Africa. There was a lot of trauma in her history. She had gotten into a relationship with a man when she was 14 and quickly fell pregnant before giving birth to a son. That relationship ended, however, when her boyfriend died unexpectedly and very sadly, some years later, her son died too. Bellina was then gang-raped at the age of 20, an attack which saw her contract HIV. And consequently, at an age when her peers were living a carefree life, she had experienced more heartache and tragedy than anyone could expect to experience in several lifetimes. Wow, I never knew that about her past and her history. Some of it's not verified, but I'm I'm taking her word for it. I'm not going to dispute that that she was gang-raped. I'm sure that did happen to her. But Belina was determined that she would not be a victim. She refused to allow her trauma to define her and she made a conscious decision to live her best life. At 41, she'd been living with HIV for more than two decades and to Mark, she represented hope. He had acquired the virus following a short relationship with a woman in The Hague and he was newly diagnosed when he met Belina and full of uncertainty about his future. The pair's virtual relationship blossomed and Mark came over to England to visit Bellina regularly. A year after they first met in 2011, he visited her and never left. The couple moved in together and Mark, who was a highly skilled site engineer, soon gained employment in the construction industry. His £300 a day salary enabled him to financially support Bellina, who began a part-time fashion course at the University of the West of England, and the couple lived a fairly ordinary life. They had a nice flat in an affluent area of Bristol, they socialised and travelled together, Mark's family came over regularly and stayed with the couple, and they visited his family in Berlin too. Life appeared to be going well for them. But beneath the surface, their relationship was, oftentimes, fraught with insecurity, jealousy and anger. Although Mark towered over Bellina, he was six foot five and described by friends as strong, it was Bellina who called the shots in their relationship, often resorting to intimidation, violence and emotional blackmail in order to get her own way. Not long after they moved in together, she exploded at Mark, accusing him of cheating on her. When he denied her allegations, she threw boiling water over him. Mark required medical treatment and explained the burns away by saying that he'd spilt a cup of tea over himself. That is horrendous. That is really vicious. That's It really is vicious, isn't it? Oh my God. No kind of abuse, physically, mentally, whatever, is acceptable in a relationship, but there are degrees of physical abuse, aren't there? And I think that is right up there. Yeah, I mean, that that could blind somebody, that could give them scars. Like, yeah, like nothing's ever okay, but that just seems really bad to me for some reason. Yeah, not many people would do that even in a fit of rage. In 2012, the couple briefly moved to Eindhoven, where they planned to have IVF treatment. But they didn't stay long, ultimately deciding to delay starting a family so that Belina could finish her fashion course in Bristol. 
and it was at around this time that their relationship became increasingly volatile. Belina, who suffered from anxiety, depression and PTSD, had severe anger issues and, as we've heard, was prone to violent outbursts. She claimed Mark was violent too, but there is no evidence of this. In the years that followed, Belina became more and more violent towards Mark, and she also began to financially abuse him. She took control of his earnings, a large portion of which made their way to South Africa, where they went towards financing the building of a house for her family. More violence followed, and Mark confided in colleagues and family over the years that he was scared of his girlfriend. I mean, that's brave as well to admit, because there's still this huge stigma, isn't there? Any Even to, to yeah. today's standards, that um, about men being the victims of abuse, and it, even though there really shouldn't be. So it's really brave that he actually was confiding in people and oh it's just horrible. And and also he's this massive guy, six foot five, he's really physically strong. So for him to admit that he is being physically abused by his girlfriend, yeah, it's even more difficult than for some other men who don't give off that appearance that they're they're really strong and wouldn't kind of stand for it. Things finally came to a head in the summer of two thousand and fifteen. I don't know what happened, perhaps Mark was able to gain some kind of perspective on the relationship, or perhaps he found an inner strength from somewhere. Whatever the case, he realised that the relationship was over, and that he would be better off without Belina. In mid-August of that year, Mark met a woman called Violet, and the two began seeing each other. He was still living with Belina, but was now making plans to leave her. When she found out about his affair, she confronted him. But Mark remained strong. He told her he wanted out of the relationship and he subsequently moved out of the flat that they had shared for five years. Oh wow, good for him. Incredible. Massively, yes, such a brave thing for him to do. A few days later, on the 21st of August, Mark called an ambulance to his former home, fearful that Belina had taken an overdose. It's not clear why he believed that she'd attempted to take her own life. I've done a lot of research on this case and there's so much information out there. I'm I'm sure the reason is out there, but I would assume that she had told him that she had either taken an overdose or that she was at least planning to. And that is typical behaviour of an abuser in a coercively controlling relationship, using this kind of emotional blackmail to get her own way. Belina clearly thought that she could coerce Mark into coming back home and getting back together with her. She would have so desperately wanted this because she would have so desperately wanted to be able to assert her control over him once again. Belina subsequently denied that she had attempted to take her own life, instead saying that she'd become agitated at the end of her relationship and she said that she was panicking about how she would be able to afford the flat without Mark's financial support. Either way, it's quite clear at this point that her world was imploding and her mental health was clearly suffering too. And that becomes abundantly clear over the next few days. In the early hours of the 23rd of August, Belina sent Mark a number of text messages accusing him of fraud. She also accused him of calling his new girlfriend ugly behind her back. She accused him of having sex with children and said she'd tell everyone that he had previously worked as a prostitute. Her word, not mine. I think it's safe to say that Belina had completely lost the plot at this point. Mark denied all of these allegations and responded by saying, I love you and care about you. 
Don't be like this. We have been together for five years. I will not let you go down in shit. I will help you financially. Let's keep peace between us. Goodness, like bless him. He's really trying there then, isn't he? I think so, yeah. I think those text exchanges in the early hours of the 23rd of August, to me, they showed me two things. One, that he is really passive. And like you say, he's very much trying to keep the peace. But I think he's definitely being controlled by Belina still. And two, it tells me that Belina was off a fucking rocker at this point because she's just throwing weird and wild allegations at him that just make no sense. Belina was clearly in no mood to be reasonable. She responded to Mark's message by saying, You lied to me for five years, stopped my life for you, helping you with your issues. You received your job by deceit. This is a big crime in this country, by the way. On the 2nd of September, Mark called the police and reported Belina for stalking and blackmailing him, and he said that she'd also been making silent phone calls to his new partner, Violet. The police visited Belina at her home and she was given an official harassment warning. And this was a clear tipping point for her. She knew that Mark was aware of her mistrust of the police. She loathed them. And the fact that he had reported her to them was the final straw for her. She would later go on to say that she felt extremely let down by Mark following this humiliating visit from the police. She denied she had been stalking or harassing Mark or Violet in any way, but she did admit to making 14 silent phone calls to the latter. She said she had wanted to annoy Mark and she knew this would wind him up. The next day, Belina spent 27 minutes on the phone to a mental health crisis team and later she took an overdose which resulted in her being admitted to the Bristol Royal Infirmary. She was discharged the next day and she has since claimed that Mark contacted her following her release from hospital, professing his undying love for her and begging for a reconciliation. We don't know if that's true, we only have Belina's word to go on, but it could be true. This was a coercively controlling relationship. Belina had a hold over Mark and it is quite possible that he felt guilty at her suicide attempt. What we do know is that on the day Belina was spoken to by the police, she ordered a one litre bottle of 98% concentrated sulfuric acid from Amazon. Over the following weeks, she conducted 82 separate online searches into sulfuric acid. She researched the damage it caused when thrown over someone, the effects of drinking it. She looked at pictures of acid attack victims. She conducted multiple searches on Katie Piper a well-known acid attack victim in this country, and she visited a website showing post-mortem images of a man who had drunk sulfuric acid. She was clearly planning something terrible. This is just ridiculous, and it's so damning, and I'm always so shocked when people just go online as if this won't be traced after the fact. Like, what the hell is she doing? Yeah, I think she just wasn't thinking straight. So Belina's plans came to fruition on the evening of the 23rd of September. She and Mark were due to have dinner at the flat they once shared and as I said it is possible that they were attempting to reconcile following Belina's overdose. Instead of having dinner with Belina however, shortly after arriving at the flat, Mark went out to meet Violet. It's not clear why, perhaps he was meeting with her to end their relationship, to tell her that he was getting back together with Belina. What we do know is that when he returned to the flat at 10pm, an argument ensued and he and Belina rowed. Eventually things did cool sufficiently though, and the couple went to bed. 
At 2.45am with Mark fast asleep, Belina put her deadly plan into action. She poured a quantity of the sulfuric acid that she had purchased weeks earlier into a glass and as Mark lay in bed motionless, dressed in just his boxer shorts, she woke him gently. As he came round, Belina began laughing hysterically before shouting at him, If I can't have you, no one will. And with that, she threw the acid over his face and torso. Immediately, a pungent smell of chemicals and burning flesh and hair filled the room. Mark shot out of bed and ran out of the house and into the street, screaming for help. The acid was quite literally eating him from the outside in. Isn't it just... And the scene I'm going to paint over the next few minutes, is it just gets even worse. A neighbour heard Mark's screams and rushed out of his house to see what was going on. When he came face to face with him, he could see immediately that he was extremely distressed, but he just couldn't fully take in what was standing before him. Mark's face had literally melted away. Several of his features had simply disappeared. One of his eyes was gone, one of his ears had melted away too, and his nose was also gone. The rest of his face was black and unrecognisable. Mark was blind, screaming in pain, screaming to be doused with water to soothe his burns. The man who had come to help him called the emergency services and in the recording, which is available online, you can hear Mark screaming in agony in the background and it is just gut-wrenching. And I, at this point, I have to say that I really feel for the neighbour who was first on the scene because to be presented with something like that in the middle of the night... Um, You can hear the recording online and he just sounds so calm, so comforting to Mark. But there is also this clear undertone of panic in his voice, which is just chilling. I think, like you said, you wouldn't really quite know what you're looking at because you're expecting the person you know. And then his face wouldn't have looked human. He wouldn't have sounded human. Yeah, it's it's not something that you will have ever come across. So you're not going to fully understand what what it looks like and and what he stood before you so I think it was just too much to take in and he couldn't quite really understand what what he was faced with. This commotion resulted in more neighbours coming to Mark's aid. One woman described seeing his face and thinking that perhaps he'd been on a stag do and that his friends had played a prank on him. She said it looked like his face had been covered in mud or clay. It was dark and misshapen. But when she got him under a street light, it was clear that this wasn't mud or clay. Mark's face was literally melting and dripping onto the ground. While neighbours waited for the emergency services to arrive, they decided to take Mark to a nearby flat to put him under a shower. He was in agony, burning and desperately pleading for water that he could splash on his wounds. Paramedics arrived and immediately took Mark to a nearby hospital. He was in a critical condition and in a very real danger of going into cardiac arrest. Now, when that first neighbour came to Mark's aid, Mark had made it very clear to him that Belina had done this to him and the neighbour then relayed that information to the emergency services operator. Oh my God, I'm so glad he was able to do that. Honestly. Um, And it meant that police were called and they soon arrived at Belina's flat. They were met with an overwhelming smell of chemicals and they followed the acrid trail into the bedroom, the scene of the attack. The bedsheets were burnt and black but there was no sign of Belina. 
They made their way into the living room and there she was, sat on the sofa, staring into space. She was taken into custody and locked up in the cells of Patchway Police Station for the night and she would go on to be questioned the following day when her lawyer arrived. Meanwhile, at Southmead Hospital, Mark was assessed by the specialist Burns Medics. The Burns had affected 25% of his total body space and they covered two-thirds of his face and a large percentage of his upper chest, arms and thighs. 25% of his body... Yeah, and they were really sort of thick, deep burns as well. They weren't just like surface burns. They had almost, well, they had penetrated into some of his organs, for example. Mark was sedated and deemed to be in a critical but stable condition. When questioned the next day, Belina calmly told the police that she and Mark had gotten into a violent struggle that night. She said she'd been attempting to get away from him and that he had physically restrained her. She said she picked up a glass of water and threw it over him, not realising that it was actually sulfuric acid. Oh my god, I hate her. I know, such a weak excuse, yeah. So she said that she was in shock when she saw what it had done to Mark and that's why she didn't call for help um, or, or run to his aid. And she said she went and sat on the sofa while she slowly came to terms with the fact that the glass of water had actually contained acid. And she then went on to tell officers that Mark usually prepared a glass of water for her at bedtime and that she believed that in the early hours of that morning he'd replaced it with acid, intending for her to drink it. I mean, can you believe that? That is horrific. What a horrible, horrible woman. Oh my God, I hate her. And it's just such a fucking weak excuse. It, again, really pisses me off when they don't, you know, she she's really planned this attack on him. It's so premeditated. So could she have not come up with a better kind of excuse for it? But clearly she wasn't thinking straight at all because she'd done 82 online searches about sulfuric acid. She's obviously just not that smart either. That's true, yeah. I always just, I always forget that. that People are thick a lot of the time, aren't they, these people that we cover? So, um, Belina repeatedly lied to detectives, telling them that Mark had been abusive throughout their relationship and she said that he had intended to kill her. When questioned as to where the acid had come from, she said she was a fashion student and that she'd purchased it in order to distress some clothes. Fortunately, officers didn't buy her bullshit and she was charged with throwing a corrosive substance with intent and remanded in custody pending her trial. Mark spent 11 months in intensive care at Southmead Hospital. He endured many operations and his left leg had to be amputated because of the restriction of the blood supply. As well as losing his left eye immediately after the attack, he became partially blind in his right eye. And actually some of the reports I read stated that his right eye was kind of like hanging halfway down his face, completely out of its socket, um, immediately following the attack. Even just one of these injuries is is horrific enough. That's, I think, what's really shocking, is for any, anybody, one of those injuries would be life-changing and horrendous to cope with yeah I I think you're right I think it's the sheer scale of the varied injuries that he suffered and I'll go on to talk a little bit more about some of them but but yeah you're absolutely right Mark was on a cocktail of drugs and his pain levels were assessed by pain experts who described them to be at the absolute upper level of what the human body and mind could endure 
basically any more pain and his body would have started to shut down in order to protect him from that pain which would ultimately have then resulted in his death. And this was with him being on the strongest opiates available, essentially medical grade heroin. For the first four months after his attack, Mark wasn't able to communicate. He required an operation just to be able to open his mouth. He suffered recurrent chest infections, septicemic shock, his kidneys were injured, he suffered recurrent bleeding from his bowel, and he also had problems with his gut. His heartbeat and liver function were altered, and he suffered constant itching which drove him insane. His muscles had burnt away and he was paralysed from the neck down. And it's also an incredible thing to realise that this is from such a small amount of that liquid. Such a small amount of acid can do this much damage. Yeah. You'd you'd almost expect that you'd have to use litres upon litres, but no, half a glass. Like it, yeah, she, she's literally, yeah, she's just flung a glass of it at him. It took 10 days for Mark to be identified. In that time, he lay in his hospital bed on his own, drifting in and out of consciousness, so desperately in need of the love and support of his family. As soon as his identity was confirmed, his family were contacted and they made their way to Southmead Hospital. Mark's dad, Keith, described arriving at the hospital, having driven from his home in Belgium with his wife, Rita, Mark's stepmother. And I'm going to allow Keith to take up the story from here. The following is taken from his victim impact statement, which was read out during Bellina's trial. The receptionist brought us to the intensive care unit. There were six bedrooms, but at first I couldn't find Mark, and I thought that maybe the police had made a mistake. Then the doctor told me that he was in room one. I had been unable to recognise my own son. He was in a light coma and seemed to respond to my voice. I didn't leave his bed for four months. Rita went home after three weeks and returned on a regular basis. Bart, Mark's brother, and his wife Angelique also made regular visits to Mark. Mark's eyes were bandaged, but he managed to tickle the palm of my hand. Every day I had to disinfect myself before I entered the room. I alerted the doctors to the fact that Mark's foot was cold, but they assured me that this was normal. A few days later, I noticed that his left foot had turned black. It set off warning bells with the staff, and there came a difficult time when his leg needed to be amputated. I indicated at the time that Mark wouldn't have wanted this, but the doctors got me to understand that we had no choice in the matter. All that time Mark was unable to communicate with me. Mark told me at a later stage that he was aware of the amputation, and that he had felt like a loaf of bread when his leg was amputated slice by slice. After approximately four months, Mark was at last able to communicate by sticking out his tongue when I was reading through the alphabet letter by letter. After some time, he moved from intensive care to the Burns ward. At first, Mark didn't realise how badly injured he was. He went through the hellish pain of skin grafts and unbearable itching. He was on the maximum painkillers and anti-itching tablets. After several weeks, Mark got a lung infection and needed to be readmitted from the Burns ward to the intensive care ward. There, he received a tube in his throat for the second time. He spent a long time in intensive care before he was readmitted to the Burns ward. He was only allowed to return after the tube had been removed from his throat. At that point, he was promised to receive physiotherapy and the use of a small pool in that ward, which he was looking forward to. In fact, he never received that therapy. 
After more than one year at Southmead Hospital, he was told that it was time for him to be transferred to a care home in England. They told us that they had found the best home for him in England, in Gloucester. He was to be moved on a Tuesday. In those days I spent two and a half to three days a week with Mark and I went home to work on the weekdays. Mark was due to be moved on the Tuesday. He insisted that I didn't need to stay with him for the transfer. On the Monday and Tuesday that week I was back in work in Belgium. On the Tuesday evening after coming home from work I received a phone call from Mark. He was completely distraught. I drove to the care home in Gloucester that same evening and arrived outside at five in the morning. I had intended to have a nap in the car but when I went to stretch my legs outside I heard Mark screaming. When the front door eventually opened to me it was incredible what I found. Mark was lying in his own stools. The carers in Gloucester were mystified why Mark had been placed in their home because it was completely unsuitable for him. I didn't leave his side after that. At that point he became determined to move to Belgium and he asked me to arrange it for him. The ambulance arrived on Friday in Gloucester and left on Saturday morning for the Maria Hospital in Overpelt, Belgium. On his arrival, Mark was admitted to the palliative care unit in a single room since he was so badly injured that he couldn't mingle with the other patients. I didn't leave his side again. To relieve his pain and itching, I spent entire days rubbing him and moving his arms because he was completely paralysed. Then several neurologists assessed Mark. Mark wanted a second opinion. All the experts reached the same conclusion namely that Mark would remain paralysed for the rest of his life. Mark still felt positive but he wanted to complete a formal application for euthanasia anyway because he had already suffered so much pain. Just before Christmas Mark incurred another lung infection. The doctors came to tell him that a tube needed to be inserted in his throat for a third time. This time it was 99% certain that he would lose his voice for the rest of his life. Long conversations took place between the doctors, Mark and me in his room. It was between Christmas and New Year. The doctors said that if no tube was inserted into his throat and if the lung infection continued to develop at the same pace, Mark would not survive for longer than three days. Mark was very much opposed to the third tracheotomy because he wanted to be able to talk to me until the end. If the lung infection were to develop at a slower pace, he could expect to survive for two or three weeks before suffering a terrible death through asphyxia. Mark said, I have suffered pain, itching and enough misery and I'm tired of fighting. By then, the euthanasia application was fully complete. On January the 2nd, Mark wanted to take the last journey in his bed with me and the catheter was inserted in the cardiac room. The euthanasia took place at 7.15pm and Mark died. The fact that Mark, a 29-year-old man, a recent graduate, decided to commit euthanasia says something about the condition he was in and the amount of pain he was suffering. He said, Dad, I'm tired of fighting. I've suffered so much pain and I can't take any more. Please let me go. So I know that was quite lengthy. Um, No, I think it's really important because it it's from basically from Mark's own words as much as possible um, from his dad to actually hear it in his words and, and what happened. And, oh, it's just so, so sad to listen to. It is. It's devastating. And there's a little bit more that I'll go on to in a minute, which is just heartbreaking, really. 
So Mark's dad talks of the unbearable pain of having to let go of his son. He talks about how he would have wanted the same had it been him, but how difficult it was to accept that Mark wanted to end his life. He went on to say, I hope that justice will prevail and that she will be locked up for the rest of her life because she's a danger to society. I feel like a broken man, completely drained, and the old keys no longer exists. Mark and I lost our battle. It has also had an enormous impact on my financial situation. It is a snowball still growing in size. I used to have a very good marriage with Rita for 11 years, but I'm no longer my old self and I'm living in a friend's apartment. I'm trying to find some peace for what happened. I'm living one day to the next and we will see what tomorrow brings. I can no longer sleep. I take antidepressants and sleeping tablets. I feel entirely drained and exhausted. I'm also seeing a psychiatrist. In the past, nothing would faze me, but now I have lead in my shoes. I miss Mark terribly because he was my boy, my son. Despite all the consequences for my health and financial status, I don't regret it for a minute and I would do it all again. I hope that I will get over it one day. I mean, it's just, I think to hear a dad talk about his son, losing his son in that way, and to think about all Keith did for Mark in those months when he lay in a hospital bed, going out of his mind, itching, in pain, and he just didn't leave his side. It's just... That's like the, yeah, the true love of a father, isn't it? It's incredible. Yeah, yeah. In a legal first following Mark's death, Bellina was charged with his murder. However, ultimately, she was only found guilty of throwing a corrosive substance with intent. The judge at her trial sentenced her to life imprisonment and told her that she would serve a minimum of 12 years before being considered for parole. Bart, Mark's brother, set up a crowdfunding appeal on behalf of his father, who essentially lost everything, and although it's now closed, I was really pleased to see that it had raised nearly £40,000 for Keith, and it was so lovely to see the donations from people all over the world, Um, lots of anonymous donations as well from people that didn't know the family. So, Bellina could be released from prison in 2027. Hopefully I won't still be living in Bristol by then, but it's quite shocking to think a woman like this could be free to roam the streets, free to get into another relationship, and free to do exactly what she did before. What do you think? Get in touch in all the usual ways. We're on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. You can also comment on Patreon or send us a DM there. And um, yeah, what do you think of the sentence and, and what do you think of the um, the charge being brought for murder, but then ultimately of her being acquitted of, of murder? Um, I think as we said at the very beginning, this is a, an episode that's going to stick with a lot of us, isn't it? It's, um yeah, it's made me feel really sad in my heart. It's just horrible. Like never, we never cover anything nice, but this is just really horrendous. Yeah, this has been a particularly difficult one. I absolutely agree. So, um, yeah, as I say, get in touch with us with your thoughts. In the meantime, check us out on Patreon, www.patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast. And don't forget to get your free box of eight craft beers from Beer52. Head over to beer52.com slash red. Thank you for listening. We will see you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.